0: Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What do young people need today and how can they fight for it? Last summer, massive, young, working-class protests exploded around the world after the murder of George Floyd and other appalling incidents of racism and police violence. But it's not just these issues that angered young people. In the US, Britain and around the world, the youth are suffering appalling conditions and a future of crisis and uncertainty. But young people have also fought back. In electoral movements through support for figures like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, and on the streets in the global climate strikes and last year's huge young and working class uprisings under the slogan of Black Lives Matter. Even before the pandemic, Wages were low, jobs insecure, housing and education unaffordable, and tomorrow promised nothing but economic and social turmoil and even climate catastrophe. In 2020, the pandemic multiplied all these problems as the capitalists and their politicians dumped the burden disproportionately on the working class and youth. Young people on the streets were angry about racism, but they were also angry about all of it. We would also recommend our November episode, Universities in Crisis, that's episode 91. But right now we're going to look again at how can young people fight to change things and what would a socialist program offer young people in that struggle? This episode of Socialism, one of our highlights of 2020, looks at how young people can fight back a Socialist Youth Charter.
1: B and thank you for agreeing to record this podcast with me today.
2: Hi Helen you're welcome how are you today?
1: I'm good just so that everyone listening can know I'm Helen Patterson I work for the Socialist Party in London
2: and um, I'm B I'm um, a Socialist Party member in Southampton I'm a UCU activist I'm a university student so I'm involved in Socialist Student.
1: Great, and we're today going to discuss the youth charter the Socialist Party has produced, but also all of our work around young people after the coronavirus and after the lockdown, the struggles that we're all going to be involved in. But obviously another thing has happened very recently, and we've both been involved in the protests around George Floyd's death after he was killed by police in the U.S., I mean, do you want to tell me a little bit about what your protest was like in Southampton?
2: Yeah, so I think like many places around the country, Black Lives Matter protest was called at fairly late notice by a group that I don't think has been very active before. And at that short notice, there was... We can't really quantify it, but definitely over a thousand people in Southampton, which is probably one of the biggest demonstrations certainly I've seen in a long time. And the nature of the protest as well was completely different to anything I've seen, I think, ever before in Southampton, because it was predominantly young people, really angry, not only about, you know, what's happening in America, but also what's been happening in the UK and the UK's like record on issues to do with police violence and institutional racism. So... Yeah, it was, and it was, I think, made even more amazing by really that social distancing restrictions were in place. And I think a lot of people, certainly I spoke to, were aware that by coming out that, you know, there could be an increased risk to them by doing that. But they felt compelled to come out anyway, even if that meant putting themselves at risk because, you know, the strength of anger that they had. And I think that's quite telling as well. But you were in London, so how was that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just an amazing demonstration, just more and more, mainly young people, pouring out of the tubes from all backgrounds, nationalities, just infuriated and angry. And I suppose just on your little point about it being during the pandemic, because that was one thing that hit me, was we've all been involved in staying home for lockdowns to save people's lives... And then the police go out and kill someone in the street, kill an unarmed black man in the street. And it just felt like that is the ridiculousness of this system and how it operates. We've all been trying to save lives and they go out and take one instead. And I definitely felt like the demonstration was also aware of all of that. We were having lots of conversations with people about the levels of deaths in poor, mainly BAME areas, the increased risks, the high level of deaths by key workers who again, many are BAME, and that that is all because of racism, inequality, capitalism. This system, you know, is one that is vicious and was responsible for all of the things that people are facing. And we had amazing open mic. People were talking about other atrocities like Grenfell and how that, again, was caused by poverty, by capitalism. And, yeah, it was just an amazing demonstration to be part of as well. And I think that it's going to be a bit of a factor now. It wasn't just one demonstration. I mean, we've got two more in London at the weekend anyway. But I think that it will see our American comrades titled one of their articles about an anti-racism movement being reignited. And I think that is true. This could be something that builds a real movement against racism, inequality, capitalism, and it's all the things that we've had to put up with in the recent period sort of coming together in anger and solidarity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like for many people, it would have been the first demonstrations they've been on and I suppose that effect isn't one which just goes away. (laughs) You don't just go on one demonstration, have that experience of coming together with thousands of other people that are angry like you are, that are suffering like you are. So it poses that question of, you know, where do we go from here? What do we do next? And I think a lot of people were talking about how, since Black Lives Matter first kind of came to the scenes in 2014, we've had hundreds of people, mainly black and Asian, be killed at the hands of the police. But also through the other things like you said in terms of poverty racist violence the deaths due to coronavirus and we don't want this to be a movement which sort of you know ignites out of anger and then dissipates again it needs to be organized and i suppose that's something which as a socialist party you know we want to support and be part of
1: and so we have already started a little bit talking about the fact that well racism is rooted in capitalism And all of the other atrocities that come with that, all the other deaths that come with it. And other people were talking about the fact that we've had to protest before against racist killings. And there were placards on the London demonstration as well that said, like, the UK is not innocent. And that's true. I've been involved in protests myself as well, outside police stations after... Again, usually young black men have died in custody or after contact with the police. So I do think that it's going to be a factor. And like you said, I I think you're right. Like people were protesting for the first time and being involved in that protest will have a big effect on people because it was a powerful, angry, defiant protest. It had a lot of energy and I don't think that people want that to dissipate. They want to find a way to make sure that that becomes a lasting thing. And so I do think that is linked to the other things that we wanted to talk about today and the charter that we've produced because one of the reasons that so many young people were on that was because they could see that, firstly, they could lose their lives at the hands of the police, but that this system is offering them no type of future again and that if it isn't being killed by the racist police, then it is the system. They can die because of poverty, inequality. Their families are suffering because of coronavirus overcrowding. One person said it's a two-bedroom flat with nine people in it. That means if, you know, if your grandparents are in that flat and one of you gets coronavirus, then your grandparents are lost. And so I think there was a lot of understanding that it is linked to all the other problems in society. And that's what our youth charter and some of the things that we wanted to talk about today and also our future because one of the things that we've been saying in the socialist party is that to save their system during coronavirus they've mortgaged the future but that is our future you know that is a future of whether we get to have a decent standard of living a house a decent job or one of like dire poverty struggle every single day that's our future that they've mortgaged and that's what our charter is about what we need to fight for Demands, ideas and how we do it. I don't know if you wanted to say anything else on that.
2: No, absolutely. I was going to sort of say I think elsewhere in the podcast and on the Socialist Party Facebook page we've covered, you know, a bit about the sort of situation we find ourselves in in terms of the developing financial crisis and recession. Also things like you know the climate strikes and climate movement and i think quite a lot of people are putting out there at the moment sort of the problems with the system the problems that particularly young people might face in the next period of time but i think what we're doing with this chart and what hopefully we can focus on today is the vision we have we say that all of that misery is not inevitable it is the government and more broadly than that the capitalist system making us pay for their crisis which they always do. And one of the things we were going to start on was talking about, you know, what got us into sort of activity. And for me, that was 10 years ago with the trebling of tuition fees. And I wasn't actually directly affected by that, but I wanted to fight for all those coming behind me because I could see that they were being asked to pay for what was then the 2008 financial crisis. And of course... They're doing the same now because they're going to be allowing universities to continue to pay £9,250 a year fees, even if courses are online. And again, you know, students are angry by that because it's so blatantly obvious that once again, young people, students and the working class more broadly are being asked to pay with their own livelihoods, conditions at work. conditions at home for the cost of what is a capitalist crisis and so I think our charter is putting forward that this isn't inevitable there are solutions we don't have to have a life of poverty and misery and no future we can have one that we can look forward to and where everybody can flourish and obviously I think that's hopefully what we can get out of today.
1: Yeah for me it was definitely graduating from university you know and the economic crisis had just hit a few years ago And coming out of education into a world of poverty jobs, of poverty pay, you know, all of my friends were either living at home, having to move back to home after university, or living in tiny, dark, damp rooms in shared houses. And just after I left university, applying for jobs after job after job, but all of them, like minimum wage or very proud of the fact that they were like 5p above the minimum wage that was all that I could really find trying to get apprenticeships but there not being enough of them and paid so little I had to even think about if I could afford it and then when I did get a job it was on a zero hours contract I remember actually it was in a pub and the person who was doing my interview said like oh yeah from now on we're only accepting graduates to work in a pub pulling pints and I was like why and he was like well there's so many people applying we can impose that rule and we still got enough people so we're just going to employ graduates because we think that they're going to turn up on time and I was just like this is ridiculous, (laughs) this situation. And then it was a zero hours contract, which wasn't really explained to me at the time. They were like, oh, it's flexible. So it's really good for you. And it was like, I don't need flexibility. But even the people who did need flexibility, there was a woman who had kids there. There was another person who was still a student. They weren't able to turn down shifts. So it wasn't really flexibility. It was completely you at the behest of the employer. And that had a big effect on me about, is this how we're all expect to be treated? We're, you know, I'm going to work every single day or as many days as I could, as many days they give me hours. I'm barely getting by covering my rent, covering my phone bill. And, you know, is this how we're all expected to get along? And then you see, you know, the sort of wealth at the top of society and you just think we're the people that are really working hard and okay I was pulling pints but you know it makes me think now about all the key workers who are on the same conditions that I was on then the same pay these are the people that clean the hospitals well that's what we need to happen to stop coronavirus you know that is like one of the most vital jobs in the world right now and they get paid poverty wages and struggle the same way I was struggling and are on zero hours contracts or work multiple jobs Even that in the care sector, they've said, has helped spread coronavirus. They have set this system up to fail our generation and people during this whole crisis. And it is all following on from the last economic crisis, the impact of it, you know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it, is that we're not going into this one from a good place. People are already, you know, in adequate housing, on insecure and really exploitative contracts. And when you say about <laughs> employers always say that, don't they? Oh, it's flexible. It's flexible for you, which is really good. Where well, it's not flexible for the worker. It's flexible for the employer. It means that they are able to cut costs. They can try and maximise how much work they get out of people because people are desperate for the work, increase competition between workers. It's all on their terms. It's not on ours. We were going to talk about our charter, but I think before we did that, one of the things we wanted to talk about, not that we're asked this very often at the moment, but our vision and our demands about pay, jobs, training, education, housing, and fighting against oppression, people sometimes would ask us, well, okay, that's great, but you know, how are we gonna pay for that? And I think <laughs> we're asked that less at the moment because it's very clear that the wealth exists in society. Since the coronavirus crisis started, billions has been you know, handed to big business in order to kind of prop them up and, and save them. But at the same time, they've announced pay freeze for nurses and other sort of attacks on the working class. I don't know if you've got anything more to say on that.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think in a way we are getting asked, how do you pay for all these brilliant things, the demands that you've got? We're getting asked it less now because it's clear the wealth that does exist in society. It sort of pales in comparison when you've been on a campaign like, oh, how can we afford to keep your seven libraries open the councils broke and then you see the amount of resources they could pull together for the furloughing they're essentially printing money you know in the states handing out all of those checks and things like that and i think the other side to that is also that people know that those are rich in society but who does the jobs who makes the world go round It's ordinary people. It's not the wealth creators as sometimes they get called because they don't do that. They don't make anything. (laughs) All they do, when the CEOs have all been sat at home, maybe not furloughed, but, you know, working from home, but the work is still happening and it's not because of them. It's because of ordinary people. So not only does the wealth exist in society for us all to have a decent standard of living, but actually it is also about we're the people who produce things in society. We're the things that make them. It's just that we don't own that wealth, that we don't get to play any role in organising, making sure that those resources are fairly distributed, get to the people who need them. That's all decided by the market, by profit, by capitalism. And so I think that yeah, during Corbyn's leadership he got asked a lot, like, how do you pay for these things? But I think that actually the reality of this system is being exposed for a lot of people. That Yeah, the wealth and resources do exist for a decent standard of living for all. It's about hoarding of that wealth by the capitalists at the top of society that's the real issue.
2: Absolutely. And I think the coronavirus crisis as well, it leads people to question, like, what is it that we're doing as a society? What are our primary responsibilities? Like, what is the mark of a good society? Like, as humanity, what are our aims, I suppose? And You know, capitalism and its logic makes you think it's all about the economy and the importance of profits. And obviously, in our current society, we do need to produce things so that everybody's got what they need. It's not saying that it's not important at all. People do need work. But actually, our priority should be ensuring that everybody in society has decent health and access to healthcare, has decent housing, basic shelter, (laughs) has the opportunity to develop themselves for an education and has opportunities to be able to contribute meaningfully to that work of society either through producing things in terms of goods or in terms of contributing to the running of society through like public services like I think coronavirus for me particular has highlighted that and I think for many other people too you know what is it that you know this is about and people are questioning what sort of future do we want do we want to go back to how it was before or do you want to have a new way of doing things and I think as socialists that's what we're putting forward an alternative well, here's an alternative to capitalism, here's an alternative way. And it isn't utopian, it isn't a pipe dream, it isn't unrealistic, it's very achievable and it works in the interests of the majority of people. And obviously we put forward a strategy of how we can achieve it.
1: Yeah, so the first part of our youth charter is about pay, jobs and training, which I think, especially coming out of this corona crisis, is going to be extremely important as unemployment for particularly young people is gonna skyrocket as it did after the 7 08 crisis and we saw an upturning struggle then as well we were involved in things like the Jarrow March protesting with young unemployed people fighting for jobs that was a big feature of the campaign did you want to say a little bit about the program that we've put forward for paid jobs and training
2: Yeah definitely and so obviously we're not going to have time to go into all features of the bits we're covering today but the charter is available, we'll share links in the show notes for people to read but fundamentally I suppose in the immediate term one of the demands we put forward is about opposing all job cuts. So I work at um, a university, I'm a student but I also work at the university on a zero hours contract. That is one of the sectors at the moment which is facing You know, mass redundancies. There's other places that have come out. They're expecting that thousands of pubs and restaurants aren't going to be able to reopen after the coronavirus crisis, which is, you know, an area that predominantly young people work in. And so, what we say is that we oppose all job cuts and that we put forward a number of demands as to how that can be achieved. One of the things is that we demand that companies open up the book so we can see trade union scrutiny you know, of their finances to be able to look and see, well, where can jobs be protected? So as an example, in the universities, some of the universities are continuing to do these expensive vanity projects, these big building complexes, at the same time as they're making casual staff redundant. Well, we say that that should be put on hold. At the moment, the priority is protecting people's jobs. But equally, you know, we put forward in situations where there is a loss, that actually these companies, including the universities, should be properly nationalised. What we mean is it's put under workers' control through public funded, so ran as a public industry, but put into the control of the workers there so that they can work out what the priorities are. And it might well be that some companies need to produce different things in the period of time, but like we've said, there is plenty of things that are needed in society at the moment. For example, ventilators, PPE, you know, all of these things, some companies that currently are saying that they you know, happen to make people redundant could be organising around. So, you know, firstly, we oppose all job cuts. We also oppose poverty pay. Our demand is for a minimum wage of £12 an hour, hopefully as a step towards a real living wage of at least £15 an hour. But also getting rid of the awful and exploitative youth rates, which means that people doing the exact same job but that are younger are getting paid loads less an hour. And apprentices can be paid as something as little as, I think, £3 something an hour. So, (laughs) you know, we say scrap those. Similarly, we say that benefits should be increased to the level of the national minimum wage without youth rates delays because people are unfortunately going to be on universal credit in this period of time. And we know that that is a system (laughs) that puts people in poverty and unable to live. And obviously, another major thing is about the sort of work that people are working on. Like you mentioned, you are on a zero hours contract. I'm on a zero hours contract. When we talk about jobs, we want to have secure jobs where people have got, you know, rights at work. So so we say about scrapping zero-hour contracts, ending the super exploitative nature of the gig economy, where a lot of young people are having to find work at the moment, that all workers should have trade union rates of pay, employment protection, sickness and holiday rights. And one of the things the coronavirus has highlighted to many people is that thousands of us, millions of us, don't have those protections. I don't have that protection. If I'm sick, I don't get paid. And whilst maybe some of us have realised for a while that that was a problem, you know, you kind of do what you can, get the work you can. But I think what this moment highlights is that why, why should that be the situation that we're all in? Like we should be able to have those basic rights.
1: Right in the beginning, actually, of the pandemic and the lockdown, there was this, there was a bit of a demand, wasn't there as well, of no going back. Because we've had for coronavirus sick pay and things like that brought in so that you can isolate and there's been loads of pressure to make sure people have pay when they're isolating and really a lot of the demands that we're putting forward are things that, you know, some of them are rights that we've lost and can be fought and won again. Just two little other points that I thought were really good in the charter we've produced is firstly making the link between jobs and a socialist Green New Deal that we need decent pay, we need decent jobs, we also need to save the planet and that it's the big business involved in things like the fossil industry that are destroying our planet and that the two are linked. We can fight for green new jobs to be made as well, especially if we nationalise things like the fossil industry under workers' control to fight for those and I think that's a really important link to make. One of the other sections in the charter is about housing, which, again, I think is extremely poignant during coronavirus. For example, one of the protests that was called for George Floyd happened in Newham, which is one of the poorest areas in the country. And it was actually Socialist Party members in the Trades Council who pushed for that protest to be called. On it, they were talking about how there's a shopping centre in Newham, which usually has you know tens hundred people sleeping in it every single night and obviously with coronavirus it would have been so easy to be spread for those people really struggling living on the streets and during this crisis rough sleeping has essentially been solved for it because they put everyone into hotels now that said It hasn't actually, because I've seen reports already that since the lockdown and the government scheme to put people into housing during the corona crisis, half as many rough sleepers were created by the crisis itself, by being kicked out, unable to pay their rent and things like that. And obviously the government scheme is going to come to an end. So it is an opportunity that's going to be sort of missed to solve the housing crisis for those people who are with sleepers but also the housing crisis is a lot more than that we've called for in our charter mass council house building and just to link it again i mean some of the grenfell families were homeless for years after the grenfell tragedy and Because the council, despite having many empty homes in the area, said that there was nowhere to put them, we say that we should take over empty homes with no compensation for the fat cats, you know, no compensation for the big building companies that have huge profits, huge turnovers, and build and then sell houses that are completely unaffordable to ordinary people. We call for no to rip off rents and evictions, and like I was saying at the beginning, this isn't just a coronavirus issue. Housing has been a huge issue, particularly in London, for a long time. And it's been coupled with all of the other cuts that we've had to face around services. So not only are you living in an overcrowded house potentially, but you've got nowhere to go. You've got no youth clubs to go to to spend time safely in the evening without all your little brothers and sisters crowding around, you? We also need decent services so that people can have a decent standard of living. We need decent housing and those services. Libraries, another place where you can spend some time safely, have all been lost. And I think that alongside a housing crisis, a jobs crisis, we've also got a a services crisis in a way and there has been talk during the lockdown particularly but also before it about a mental health crisis of a generation who have been abandoned and have been let down by this system and the impact that it's having on their health in more ways than one and so we've got demands putting forward the need to fight for all of those things for somewhere decent to go and support is one of the demands for example but also for councils who a lot of these services would have been provided by in the past to refuse to make any more cuts and actually start to build a movement that demands the funds that are necessary to fund those services, which they aren't A&E services, but often they also are still life-saving services. They're a lifeline for a generation of people and extremely important and we think that they are worth fighting for.
2: Absolutely. And there's an article, I think, in last week's paper, but it's online, an extended article about the role of councils. Many of them over the last decade have been passing on Tory cuts. They've been putting forward the austerity measures in the hope that, well, you know, refusing to put up a fight, waiting for things to get better. And actually what's happened now, we've got another financial crisis. Councils are facing a reduction in incomes due to lack of people going on universal credit, won't be able to Pay as much council tax, they're not going to get their money through things like business rates. And so they're facing another financial crisis plus the austerity from central government and actually. They've not got anything left to cut, it seems, apart from actually getting rid of their core services, what's left of them. And, you know, we say that's not inevitable. They should, well, we've always put forward the need for them to use their reserves and borrowing powers in the interest of stopping cuts. An example is at Southampton City Council, where I live, they recently borrowed £200 million, which we said they should have borrowed to build council houses which is a needed service they'd have got the money back through you know council rent but it would have been providing a service it'd been providing jobs building them houses but instead they borrowed it to speculate on the property market which is now going to fall through the roof because of the financial crisis and it's probably going to lose the money that was a choice that they made other councils have done that too that isn't what they should have been spending their borrowing powers on they should have been doing it in our interests. and now we desperately need councils you know we need to build a movement I suppose at movement to demand that councils don't make any further cuts and unite together oppose the government if they make them do anything like that okay so next in our charter is around education and i think it's first very briefly worth mentioning when we talk about education we don't mean the same as what education looks like at the moment for many people certainly i hated school because at the moment, you know, it's like an exam factory and it doesn't meet individual students' needs necessarily. I know teachers do a really good job of trying, but they've got massive class sizes. They've not got the resources available. And so what ends up happening is teaching to exams. Universities are either too expensive for people to go to or just leaves you know students with a lifetime of debt. And the quality of that education has been reduced because of what we call marketisation, which is bringing in market. What that means is they build fancy buildings. They make it very attractive for students to come, but don't invest in providing a really good quality of teaching and learning and experience when students are actually there. Because... They've already got their money, so at that point it doesn't matter so much. And this is an example of that, like I said, I'm a teaching assistant at university, I teach seminars and I get paid 13 pounds an hour, which is a job you have to have two degrees for. That is the bulk of what most students would consider their learning experience. And if I'm getting paid 13 pounds an hour for twenty-four students in a seminar, like where else is that money going? And it isn't going to the pride in their teaching. So we have a different vision for an education system. Ours is one where everybody gets a chance to develop themselves, whatever their age. And we've got obviously demands in our charter about what that should look like. So first and foremost, we put demand forward for free education across the life course. And that means scrapping tuition fees, but also college fees for adult learners. We say that all student debt should be written off and we should replace student loans with genuine living grants for all students not only in higher education, but also further education. One of the things that the coalition government got rid of in 2010 was the educational maintenance allowance, which gave an income to students that were of college age, sort of 16, 17 and 18 year olds, so they could continue in college when maybe their families couldn't afford, you know, for them to, so people on a low income. We also campaign and demand publicly funded education system. Again, That means by making education free, that means, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, we should all pay for it through publicly funded services and the higher education funding crisis, which we've not really gone into today, but there's plenty of stuff in the socialist newspaper and online about this highlights that the funding system has completely failed the university funding crisis at the moment, which is gonna threaten thousands of jobs in the sector is entirely caused by the tuition fee system introduced by the coalition government. We say it should be publicly funded and therefore we should kick big business out of education. And that's not only again in higher education like universities, but also the academies, all the maintained schools that aren't controlled by local authorities anymore and have got business involvement. They should all be run publicly, but also democratically because we said a few times now, students, staff, teachers, school peoples we understand about what it is that we need the kind of education we want and the best way to deliver it but at the moment who stands in the way of that is the market model yes but also the government and the curriculum that's imposed on all of us so we say that we should have a say in what we learn that the national curriculum should be opened up so that it can be developed by pupils, parents and teachers collectively, rather than imposed by the government. And yeah, ultimately, all of these demands we put forward are about giving young people a genuine opportunity to fulfil themselves, whether that's in academic study or vocational study, but their education should be linked to being able to then later access well-paid and decent jobs or training. Like you mentioned, so many graduates, I think a third of graduates go into non-graduate jobs. And obviously, some graduates might want to do that. But The majority of people that go to university do it in the hope that it's going to improve their life chances and it doesn't have that effect at all. But equally, you shouldn't have to go to university to be able to secure a decent job. So education is about being able to develop yourself, give yourself the best opportunities in life. And at the moment, too many people are excluded in that process and aren't given the sort of education that they need. And these are some of the demands that we put forward that would be a starting point for changing that.
1: And we always said, even when Blair first introduced very low tuition fees, that it was a slippery slope as well, didn't we? And people said, oh, well, it's only going to be £1,000. But £1,000 has become £9,000 because a rotten, like you said, condemned government came in. You know, it was a slippery slope. Once it was introduced, they were always going to feel like they could keep increasing it. And like you said, i have gone down the route of marketisation. The other thing that I was just thinking about is, I mean, it really does say something that so many teachers who have just become teachers people who've just finished their training leave in the first year or after the first year it really tells you something about the education system that we've built that the pressure is so much they don't feel able to continue despite the years that they've been in education to become teachers and probably have wanted to become teachers because they want to help young people learn I think yeah it does say a lot that people are leaving so quickly the profession And that it's even higher when it's academies, which again is like an extra, you know, it's a layer of privatisation in the schools that students and teachers are marching with their feet and where schools get turned into academies go to neighbouring schools instead. I think it really shows you how rotten the education system we have has gotten and the need to fight against businesses being brought into the education system and for a properly funded education system as well. The next section of our charter was on, well, very relevant, we've got a section on rights and oppression and the right to protest, which is obviously extremely important given the protest that we were both involved in last night. But the other section as well is about climate change, which obviously there's been big protests on before the lockdown, and I think can fit together quite well, if I just say a few things on them, because of the big protests that students were involved in around climate change. I mean, firstly, as socialists, obviously, we're fighting for a society to end all forms of discrimination and inequality, but that doesn't mean that we stand still and that's all we're fighting for. We definitely think that gains can be won including in the form of services which do a little bit to alleviate some of the pressures of oppression and austerity and can help lives be better. But all of those are won on the basis of organising and actually with George Floyd. The fact that the police were only charged with murder after the first round of protests for the person who actually knelt on his neck but the other police officers more recently I think shows that Justice, as long with services and austerity uh, rights, all has to be fought for. It is not something that is given. You have to fight for those. And that's why it's so important to defend the right to protest, to strike. We have lots of anti-trade union laws in this country to try and curtail the strength of working class people when they organise together. This section of the charter also mentions the need to fight against Police harassment, and that again, it's something that we have no say over. And we call for the democratic accountability of police to have to answer to local communities, local elected representatives from the trade union and campaigns, and young people that they should be accountable to us. And also, I suppose it's sort of been a little bit forgotten because there's been the pandemic, but just before it, there was the huge movement around climate change. But you know, we were feeling the effects of climate change. There were wildfires. On the one hand and floodings on the other, you know, extreme weather events, which we know were becoming more common because of climate change. And those students were having to defend the right to strike, the right to organise, told that they were too young and things like that. Well, we were on the front lines with them saying, no, you have the right to strike, to walk out of school and protest about something that you're angry about and the environment. And that, like we were saying a little bit at the beginning, this system and the way that it's destroying the planet, as well as people's living standards, it's costing people's lives with the, like I said, floods and wildfires. And it's all for the drive for profit, ultimately. But we think as socialists that it is possible to fight for a society that is... In our interests, instead of that of profit, the fossil companies and big business and the like. And that's why a lot of our posters on those demonstrations calls for things like nationalising the polluters, the big energy companies. You can't control what you don't own. If we owned them, we could run them to produce energy, but in a green way, using green forms of energy production. But that's why we also call for socialist change, because that needs planning, that needs organising, and that needs workers' ownership of industry and production. And that's why we've called for socialist change to save the planet, and that we need a system, economy, a planet that is run for people and the planet, and that means a socialist
2: system. Yeah, absolutely. And doesn't this coronavirus crisis show that, you know, in the face of an emergency, then... Measures can be taken, but then it poses the question, why, in the face of this massive climate emergency, have those measures not been taken before now, given that we've needed to see that level of like drastic planning? And I live in Southampton. In Southampton, we've got the biggest cruise port in the UK. The cruise ships, they pump out more sulphur every year than all the cars in Europe. And actually, they could very quickly convert the ships to be safe, but they don't, because to do so would cost them... their profits and that is the, the main reason why in all of these industries those drastic changes which are already possible haven't been made even though that spells out the potential destruction of our planet because fundamentally their interests are not the same as our interests okay so we've kind of covered some of the demands we put forward in the charter but the very sort of final aspect i suppose is how do we achieve these? Because I suppose, like we said at the beginning, it's one thing knowing what some of the problems are. It's another thing knowing about what some of the solutions are. But how do we get from there to actually achieving them? And that's a big part of what we do as a socialist party, is not only to discuss the problems or talk about the solutions, but we want to be active in changing things and being part of doing that. So one of the ways that we do that is talking about the need for organisation, because as individuals, we're very limited as to what we can achieve. And it can also feel, I suppose, as individuals, like the weight of all these problems can feel like a lot. It can feel like it's too much for any one person to handle, which it is, (laughs) I suppose. So what things do we put forward as to how we can organise as young people to be able to take on the bosses, the government and the system?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things is to organise in your workplace, if you are working, Because as it's been seen, and we were saying at the beginning, there's been a bit of a realisation, isn't there, that we're the ones that make the world go round, not the CEOs and the bosses. And it is because... We're workers, we're part of the working class. We go to work every day and produce things, services and things like that. And so one way you can be powerful in doing that is by being in a trade union, by organising in your workplace. And that is how we'll win changes, improvements for now, but it's also how we will continue the fight for a better society. There's examples like the McDonald's strike action. McStrike is a company only concerned about its profits and has treated its workers around the world badly, paid them poorly, despite huge profits. The McStrike managed to win, I think it was the biggest pay rise in a decade. It wasn't nearly enough, you know, it was still, I think, less than a pound increase, but it says something that only a small proportion of their workers were on strike over the last few months, you know, for a couple of days, and yet they managed to win that, does really show you the strength of organising together. But I suppose you need to be in a union but we also need unions that are up for a fight a fighting unions that want to win the best for their members and for ordinary people against austerity and cuts and obviously you've been involved in strike action yourself haven't you Be?
2: Yeah and it feels like a long time ago now but on the very cusp of the coronavirus crisis the UCU was out on strike. We've taken 22 days of strike action in the last year over issues of pay but also casualisation, workload and inequality and the UCU as a union has gone through a big transformation in the period that I've been there because Action inspires action. We've had thousands of new members join. We've won big concessions locally through organising collectively. So just a small example, at the start of the coronavirus crisis, zero hours, casual contract people like myself were told that we wouldn't get paid for any of the work that we would have done when the campus closed. But we've managed to win secured guaranteed pay up until the end of the academic year. So that's two months more pay than we were going to get. And that has been the pressure of organising. So we've won those local victories, but obviously we need that nationally. And to do that, you need you know national leadership, not only of one union. There are some unions that have been taking a fighting role. The UCU, the CWU and the RMT have been taking that action. But really, we need all of the unions to come together, particularly in higher education. We talk about all of the education unions coming together in defence of the sector at the moment. We shouldn't be organising separately because when we do that, when we do all come together and fight amazing things happen. One of the things that happens is that you realise that you've got more in common. One of the things that happens on the picket lines is that you start speaking to other people, realising that you've got the same problems. And interestingly, in 2018, when there was the pension strikes, that in many ways, was the catalyst for then the casualisation strikes now, because everybody got together and realised that their conditions were similar, that everyone was struggling, they were overworked and we're inspired to do something. So that's one thing, but also when you stand together, you realize, like you said, we're the ones that run society. And if all of the unions collectively took action, They do pose a situation where we can challenge that. Who does run society? The unions would be in a position where they decide what opens, what doesn't, and what services are provided. So yes, we need unions, we need people to join a union, but we also need to fight for them to be a fighting union. And that means struggling to have good leadership and representatives and that they're held account by the membership so that they can be pushed forward in the direction that members need them to be.
1: And really, students need to be organised in a similar way. There's been the amazing climate strike protests there's been walkouts in the past against the Iraq war. There was walkouts against the war in Syria. I think those previous movements show what can be built amongst young people and students, particularly when they're angry and can see that this system is not operating in their interests. It's got its own imperialist interests. It's interests in war and destruction rather than creation and for people's living standards and things like that.
2: Yeah, there's 2.3 million higher education students and a further million FE students, and that doesn't include school students. If you think about if those students were collectively organised with structures that could enable them to mobilise, at the moment the NUS doesn't play that role. But if there was such an organisation, it could have a really powerful impact, and even more so if the Students' Union was to stand with workers, that would be very powerful.
1: Yeah and actually we got really let down by the NUS during the tuition fees movement. I was involved in protests of 50,000 students in the streets and there wasn't the organisation, the leadership, the sort of pulling together of all students in a movement that was capable of tackling that government at the time and that could have been built but I think that We've had you know, nearly another decade of austerity, cuts, attacks on our living standards and the pandemic since then. And we can see all the beginnings or have seen in the past these movements and the possibility of them. And actually we're in a possibility of those movements being much bigger, much angrier, much stronger and better organised because people can see that that is what is necessary if we're going to tackle this government and the system. So I think that going forward... All of those movements, campaigns and that level of organisation is even more possible. But we do need people who are willing to be part of that and want to pull together at their school, at their college, university or in their workplace with the aims of organising as a force to be reckoned with. And that needs also then a programme. And I was just thinking back about we've just produced a special edition of Socialism Today, our monthly magazine on the lessons of the Corbyn experience. And they are terrified when we organised. Despite some of the limitations of Corbyn's programme, they were terrified of the possibility of him being Prime Minister, despite the fact that at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, they said, we're basically going to implement Corbyn's programme because that's what's necessary to save people's lives at this point. Obviously, we know they didn't. They introduced policies that still protected their profit while trying to defend the system and get through the crisis. Yeah, I do think it shows the fear of when we're organised. And one of the things that the Socialist Party said throughout Corbyn's leadership was that, in a way, you know, there were some limitations with his programme, but it was inspiring that people wanted to talk about socialism and a fighting programme again. And that the capitalists were terrified not of Corbyn and his programme per se, but the kind of anger. And the kind of movement that could be ignited by him winning the leadership at first, but then also an election. Because it would make people think that now was the time to fight for genuinely demands and policies that stood in their interests, not in profits. And that was a threat to their system, their profits, their wealth. And us demanding that, you know, it was shared and that people had a decent standard of living. And really... The very final part of our charter is about socialism and we've been sort of in each of these sections talking about socialism, the needs for socialism to have a genuine education system that works in people's interests, that we have to kick profit out of the fossil fuel industry if we're going to be able to genuinely save the planet, all of these issues are linked to the fight for socialism and the need of working class and young people to unite in that struggle. One of the other things that was good about the Charter is that it also mentioned that that struggle needs to be international. And obviously we feel that a little bit with the George Floyd killing because it happened in the US, but solidarity is spread around the world, but also the fight against big businesses that are spread around the world, against governments that impose austerity. It's sometimes I think about some of the other governments in Europe when we had the condemned government and you just thought... They're exactly the same government under a different name, imposing the same attacks on their people as we're having imposed here. And we're so much stronger when we fight together, united around the world.
2: Absolutely. Poses that question, doesn't it? That we can recognise, although many people at the protest yesterday probably have never been to America, that the people on the streets in America have got more in common with them than the rich, millionaire business owners that live in the UK. Because fundamentally our interests are different, whereas we've got the same shared interests, those that live the other side of the world, but part of the working class.
1: Just the final points on the programme. I mean, we've also talked about the inability of capitalism to plan for people's needs, plan for the planet needs, like you were saying about the production of PPE. And that is what, as socialists, we call for. We think that the working class should have control over production and industry have a say in what's produced and how but that also gives us the ability to plan so that we can produce what is needed instead of people sometimes joke we've got 20 different types of laundry detergent but we can't produce enough PPE for our frontline workers during a crisis well there must be machines like you said that are not being used at the moment their workers are all furloughed but with a bit of change could be used to produce PPE and we would say that that is what a socialist plan of production can give you that has to be under democratic control and management meaning that ordinary people should have a say it shouldn't just be done from the top it should be done with everyone having their say and being able to discuss how and what needs to be produced and when therefore we need a force that's going to fight for it and that is a revolutionary party which we think the socialist party counts as
2: Yeah, absolutely. Our podcast so far has been a little bit longer than probably we intended, but we hope that people have found it interesting. And if you agree, if you're not currently in the Socialist Party, but you agree with the points that we're raising today, that you agree that we need a fighting organisation to put forward these demands, then we encourage you to join us. We need you to join us because ultimately to be able to achieve everything we've done it is going to be about getting these ideas out out to young people out to workplaces and to do that we need people in every workplace and in every school and college to be with us putting out those ideas and when we do that we can have a massive impact even you know as an individual but an individual that's part of a party with a program that can win
1: Brilliant speaking to you today, B.
2: Yeah, and obviously anyone listening can check out our further information, resources that we put out as a Socialist Party. The charter itself is available online and also in paper form. We've got posters and we've obviously got our newspaper.
1: Great. I'll speak to you
2: soon then. See ya.
0: Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from B Gardner, speaking to Helen Patterson, and I'm James Ivins. This episode, first aired on the 5th of June 2020, was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Do you agree? with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for. We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the capitalists. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.